I think self-indulgence is definitely an issue. And I think self-indulgence is when we engage in care with no thought or no intention of trying to help. If I don't sleep, then I can't help. <laughs> right? I shut down. Right? If I don't take care of my trauma, then the trauma gets in the way and I start reacting to it, creating more harm for people around me. I think when we really approach self-care in times of crisis, the, the emphasis is I'm doing this thing for myself because I want to be resourced enough to show up to help others. Because if I am not resourced enough and try to show up to help others, then likely I become work for other people. I become part of the crisis. You know, this is the whole thing about love and particularly rage. I have to take care of my anger or else I start reacting to it, creating more harm. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. My name is Michael Riley, And today I'm in conversation with Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod is a black Buddhist Southern queen, an international influencer with a master of divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School with a focus on the intersection of social change, identity, and spiritual practice. He's the author of the new book, which we discuss, The New Saints, From Broken Hearts to Spiritual Warriors, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, and co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. His teaching center on freedom, self-expression, and radical self-care. It's a delight to be in conversation with Lamarad, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. All today on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Okay, I'm here with Lama Rod Owens for the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thanks for being here, Lama Rod. Yeah, thank you so much yeah. for inviting me. So your last conversation with science and non-duality was with Victoria Santos during the um, the Dying and Living Summit. I don't know if you remember that conversation, but it was it was during the early days of COVID, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, yep. Which was, you know, it was three years ago and... Mm-hmm. I guess a lot has changed, but also not so much has changed, you know, in the sort of right. un- underlying fabric of what's going on. And you have this wonderful new book, The New Saints, which just came out, and we'll get into that. But I did want to start with the violence and the war that's unfolding now mm-hmm. in Palestine and Israel. And you shared this quote on, uh, on Instagram. I think last mm-hmm. week, and we, we reshared it at Sand. And the quote reads: um, "Face the chaos, let your heart break, ask to be cared for, be uncomfortable, accept everything as it arises, then do the work to change what needs to be changed." So, my first question is: mm-hmm. You know, wh- when we're all collectively feeling so helpless to do mm-hmm. anything. There. What is the work to change and what, what do we do? Like, where do we start with this? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a mountain of trauma, of grief, of rage, of hopelessness, yeah. right? Uh, on top of that, there's this collective disembodiment mm-hmm. as well, which is has been going on, <laughs> you know, um, for a long time, right? Um, and so when all that kind of comes up all at once, then we can feel really disempowered and really helpless, Right, and so much of my work, regardless of what's happening, no matter what is really happening in the world and on the ground, there has to be space for us to turn attention back to our own experience. Mm-hmm. Right, I can't, I can't really be in the world helping and disrupting and abolishing systems of violence if I haven't done part of that work for myself mm-hmm. first. How can I like actually really promote an ethic of love, right? And compassion if I actually have no idea what that means mm-hmm. for myself, right? And I think it feels really counterintuitive to say, yeah, there are people dying, right? Not just in in the Gaza Strip, but like all over the world, in the Congo, mm-hmm. <laughs> for instance, at this moment mm-hmm. that no one's talking about. Right, there's always this level of violence happening, right? And at some point, I have to understand that if I really, really want to see the change that I need to see, I have to start embodying, you know, these principles, these ethics, right? Because that's going to guide me to actually doing transformative work, right? You know, where it needs to be done. Right. Whatever change that I want to see in the world, I have to experience it first for myself. And I think this is what all our great change makers have done. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, they just didn't show up. You know, they had been training, they had been planning, they had been going through their own practice so they could actually initiate the change that, you know, for some of them, change the world, change our countries and cultures. Right. This is why we love them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so this is really important for all of us. You know, it's like I have to take care of myself in order to take care of the world. Yeah. I, well, a lot of that resonates with me. But I think, I don't know, it just feels like self-indulgent or something to even mm-hmm. think about self-care when when there is all of these mm-hmm. polycrises yeah. basically unfolding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's. I think self-indulgence is definitely an issue. And I think mm-hmm. self-indulgence is when we engage in care with no thought or no intention of trying to help. Right. You know, if I don't sleep, then I can't help. <laughs> yeah. Right? I shut down. Right? If I don't take care of my trauma, then the trauma gets in the way and I start reacting to it, creating more harm for people around me. I think when we really approach self-care in times of crisis, the the emphasis is I'm doing this thing for myself because I want to be resourced mm. enough to show up to help others. Because if I am not resourced enough and try to show up to help others, then likely I become work for other people. I become right. part of the crisis. Right, right. Right. You know, and this is what I was, you know, looking at in Love and Rage, which was my last book that came out during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. I have a tendency to drop books during world crisis, (laughs) but 
<laughs> like unconsciously, I guess. But, you know, this is the whole thing about love and particularly rage. I have to take care of my anger or else I start reacting to it, creating more harm for everyone. Right. So I know it's really, count. it feels counterintuitive. It feels really uncomfortable. Right. I work with a lot of activists who, you know, say the same thing. This feels self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. Right. But I also say that, like, you're working harder than you realize as well. And there are, you know, these experiences that don't register with us consciously that start showing up in other ways, you know. Um, And when we start implementing plans of like care, then we start taking care, well, we start restoring ourselves in ways you know, that are really important that we may not be able to name or talk about, but is still really supporting us to show up and be present. When we think of compassion, you know, mm-hmm. and you, you speak of fierce compassion in your book, yeah. uh, you know, compassion often has a, a, a connotation maybe of, of softness and allowing mm-hmm. and empathy Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about is developing the inner strength, the inner resilience to really mm-hmm. bring that fierce compassion when it's needed. Mm-hmm. You know what? There's nothing more important than giving a shit. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm talking about giving a shit about everyone and everything, including the people or the communities that have hurt you. you know, so when I talk about compassion, I'm talking about acknowledging that there's suffering, discomfort, violence, harm happening for myself and for others. And that ultimately we all want to be free from that that suffering. And so when I start embodying that ethic, then I actually am called into action, right? So I feel the suffering that's happening and I need to disrupt that suffering. And so what am I going to do, right? I'm compelled to disrupt suffering because I know that others in my life have done this work for me, you know, teachers, you know, friends, family, whatever, right? There are people who've intervened to help me to suffer less. And now I feel obligated to offer this same support to others. And I guess also getting back to the idea of the the helplessness that when there's these wars raging, like you said, in, you know, Congo or Ukraine or wherever, there's very limited things that we can do, but we can help. There's still people around that we can help. Mm -hmm. We can go outside and there's probably Mm -hmm. someone on our block who needs help today, you know, who needs our compassion. I mean, there are people who are just struggling to navigate this period. And if I feel resourced enough, then I offer that support to people. And it's like calling up friends, calling up family, just checking in on people, Mm -hmm. like being emotional support for folks. Right, right now. Um, And then on top of that, yeah, it's like, and then figuring out what I can do, right, to disrupt violence happening maybe in a a place or a country that's very far away from me, Mm -hmm. you know, or trying to get involved with an issue that seems like has nothing to do with me, but I still feel compelled to be a part of, of helping and being a benefit, right? And these things can be really small things, you know? But, like, I think what's most important 
is education. Let's get clear about what's happening. Right. Right. Yeah. And as uh, there's not a lot of real education happening around the crisis that's that's happening and the crisis that will emerge. You know, everything's interconnected and rooted. So nothing is just appearing and happening out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right. There, there are histories to everything. And we have to learn those histories to start making really informed decisions around how to be beneficial, right? How to stop the the war and the suffering. Right. Yeah, I guess that's a, a huge part of of giving a shit, as you said earlier, is, yeah. is knowing just bearing witness, just knowing what's going on, you know, yeah. not not just blindly following sort of corporate media narratives and be like, well, I guess that's it. Like, you know, we have yeah. we have the resources to do the digging, you know, to really, you know, compare and contrast what different narratives are saying is happening. Yeah. I mean, and this also really goes back to caretaking. You know, how do we create a kind of a, an etiquette of care that helps us to hold space for our emotions? Because we can get really emotionally reactive to everything. Mm-hmm. And yes, emotions are full of data, as I have always said. Anger is full of data. Sadness is full of data. They're telling us really important things about our experience. But an emotion isn't factual. It's not historical, <laughs> right? It's a response, to something. It's an embodied somatic response to the phenomenal world that we learn how to pay attention to, right? So yeah, I can feel really outraged. I can watch, you know, a, a report or a news segment and say, oh my God, you know? And then I say, okay, this is how I'm feeling. This is where I'm at in my body, right? I go through my practices of feeling of going into feeling more grounded, more stable. And then I say, okay, what's really happening beyond this? How can I start seeking out other information? You know, um, how can I start listening to other people? Right. And we live in social a time of social media. So this is a very different, we have a different access to information than we've had, you know, in the past. Right. Um, So I can hear the voices and listen to people who are in the midst of these conflicts and crisis, Mm -hmm. right? And that can change my view, right? And inform how I feel, Mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I, I saw, I think it was today or yesterday you were posting about Ma Tara. Yeah, Ma Tara, yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. And and when you're talking about hearing, you know, bearing Mm -hmm. witness... You know, it brings to mind Avalokiteshvara, and yeah. it's recontextualizing that for the modern age. That, yeah. yeah, people in Gaza have smartphones, and they're able to make videos mm-hmm. on the ground and upload them to Twitter or YouTube mm-hmm. or whatever. And we can see that, and we can hear their voices like yeah. almost instantly. Yeah. yeah, and and then that brings into to question the real conflict, which is: Am I ready to change mm-hmm. how I understand something? Am I ready to evolve, right? Because it's easy to get comfortable in these old ways of thinking and being, right? And, and comfort is something we we start hanging on to desperately, right? And that creates another kind of suffering for us, a kind of tension, yeah. right? Um, and to really 
to be in the world right now, we have to be willing to change. Like we have to be willing to evolve, right? We have to be willing to say, you know what? I I didn't get that right. (laughs) You know, I really didn't understand this previously. And now um, I'm getting new information and I'm ready to like kind of lean into this and see where this takes me. Yeah. Right. But that's heartbreaking work, right? We've built our identities around bad information, (laughs) (laughs) right and these kind of mythologies you know around nation states and countries Mm -hmm. right i mean i just think about america i'm just like (laughs) so over it now (laughs) right like and you have to you have to start telling the truth about where we live and how we've been living and what we've consented to believing in and start letting go of that and then and then doing the Yes, letting our hearts break. But in the midst of brokenheartedness, we do the really transformative work of mourning, Mm. right? Like touching into that sadness, that disappointment, and just like forgiving ourselves, telling ourselves it's okay, remembering that we're not the only ones moving through this. And we have to do this, yes, individually, but also collectively as well. This collective mourning can really help us to transition into the reality of things and saying, no, this is, this is what's happening. Like this is, this is happening in this moment. And that's, that's, that's a part of the work around compassion, Mm -hmm. right? You know, particularly the tradition of Matara is just like, no, like I have to tell the truth, even though this is so fucking painful, Yeah, you know, but I'm not the only one trying to do this. And the people that I love the most, these people who I adore, who I, you know, um, study in terms of like being these great change makers had to go through this, mm-hmm. right? And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the heartbreak that change makers had to endure in order to create the change for all of us to, to benefit from, Right. Yeah, it's it's one of the comforting things I think about, you know, the Buddha's concept of dukkha, of mm-hmm. unpleasantness of life, is that it's so universal. Yeah. And so it's like when you're in the midst of it, you can be like, well, at least I'm not alone. You know, yeah. <laughs> heartbreak or yeah. kidney stones or whatever, <laughs> whatever the dukkha is, it's universal. Anything, anything that we could possibly experience, there are other beings going through it at the very same time. Right. And this is what it is. Like, you know, as, as the Buddha taught, like, yeah, there's suffering in life. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not a punishment. It's just how yeah. it is because this isn't who we are. Like, this reality is in our home. Of course, it's not going to feel perfect. Right. You know? And the Buddha, he didn't bury the lead. It's yeah. like, it's the oh, first no. noble truth. <laughs> He's like, exactly. this is, you know, this, this is it. And, and it, like yeah. I said, that's that it created this universality to it, where it was yeah. accessible to yeah. anyone, no matter how, you know your economic status or class yeah. or anything like that. It's like it's it's just so universal. Yeah, yeah. That was the thing that really drew me into Buddhism was that that was the first teaching. There's suffering, and I felt like that was a, such a radical and kind thing to do. Not to lead with 
the what the comfort, the pleasure, you know, but to say no, like you're suffering and you're supposed to be suffering. <laughs> Right. This isn't extraordinary. This is where you have to start. And I said, thank God that I'm not being gaslit anymore. Mm. You know, that like there's something wrong with me because I just don't feel well enough. Right. Yeah. You know, no, it's just like, yeah, this is this is a part of what it means to be in this body, in this realm. And this is where you can start to get free from. I was mm-hmm. like, great, sign me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> to get into some of the concepts in your book Uh, well you know there's concepts but there's also really beautiful practices in your book so i highly recommend this book because it's like it's almost like a manual for Mm. you know the the current age you know and exactly and you've included so many different um references let's say where Mm. where people i think can feel held and like okay this can be my my entryway to get into into this practice which i really loved yeah i think that's absolutely true it is a manual Right, you know, because you know, this book started happening or kind of um, coming about right after I published uh, Love and Rage during the quarantine in 2020. And this is, of course, you know, with um, the murder of George Floyd, you know, kind of resparking the movement for Black Lives. And for for books, I have these actually two tendencies that I've noticed with books. First, I'm inspired by something that's happening in the world to start writing a book. And then when the book drops, it's addressing another thing that's happening in the world that I did not foresee. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, but like I wanted to offer something for, you know, really for young people. You know, for younger millennials, for Gen, for Gen Z, right? You know, maybe for a few Gen Xers, but like <laughs> I was, and I'm like in this really particular position where I'm either the the youngest Gen Xer or the oldest millennial. <laughs> you know, okay. I'm in that really that that space where we don't know who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, because we feel like we're both generations, but. I was like, young people need something. And I think as I get older, I want to take eldership really, really seriously. And so I want to give back something, mm-hmm. you know? So I was like, yeah, this, this world is, is, is real challenging, right? And this is what I've done to navigate this. And this is the tradition that I've used to do this navigating. So I want to retranslate this tradition for you. So you don't have to go through the process of like having to show up in like a Buddhist center or, you know, you know, and go through this process of metabolizing these ancient teachings into something that feels more contemporary. I've done it for you. So here it is, right? If you want to go deeper into the tradition, then by all means, you know, you have this as a manual that opens the door to that. I didn't have this, yeah. <laughs> you know. I had to start, you know, sitting in the back of the meditation hall, struggling through these concepts 
and these ideas in a place that really wasn't con- concerned with justice or identity, mm-hmm. you know, just really concerned with comfort mm-hmm. and stability. Yeah. You know, and just like the Buddha, I started with the suffering. Listen, like this is, yeah, this is a real fucked up situation here. So let's get working. Mm-hmm. Let's get to it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the second time you've mentioned this word comfort. And yeah. what it's bringing up for me is like how, how much of our, you know, poly crisis, whatever you call it, all of these things mm-hmm. happening are mm-hmm. stemming from our obsession with comfort, you know, yeah. our destruction oh, yeah. of the planet, our yep. need for resources. Mm-hmm. It's all driven by this, this aversion, this fear of discomfort. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the fear of discomfort and not having the capacity to really metabolize suffering mm. without overconsumption. You know, like yep. we use consumption to bypass suffering, yep. right? You know, which has, uh, yeah, of course, a direct impact on the planet. Like we just can't keep using up resources, yeah. you know? Um, but. What Buddhism taught me to do was like, listen, like you're not going to, you can't get free bypassing what hurts. Mm-hmm. The only way to get free is by turning into the hurt and learning how to transform the hurt, right? And get free from your attachment or fixation to the hurt, to the yeah. suffering, right? And to heal, to do the hard work of healing, right? Which is letting go, releasing, bringing back together. Right, but also letting go of who you think you are <laughs> at the same time. And yeah, that's really uncomfortable, but there's also in the discomfort is also a kind of comfort, strangely <laughs> enough, right? It's a kind of like you start getting really used to the ways in which work opens up these really spacious, fluid experiences mm. that make joy. Um, much more accessible, right? So as I'm doing really hard work, I'm also getting more and more connected to joy. So joy and hard work can happen at the same time, which makes hard work sustainable. Mm. You know, like in, in the midst of really hard emotional processing and labor that I do for myself, in that moment of just being trapped in it or feeling trapped in it, I can say, oh my God, thank, I'm so grateful that I'm doing this in this life, that I have these practices and these tools so I don't feel victimized by the suffering, but I can partner with the suffering to move through it, to transform it, right? And this creates um, less work for others around me and their caretaking of me, you know? Like, what a wonderful, amazing opportunity, (laughs) you know? And that gets me through. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, the sort of the 12 step tradition where it's mm-hmm. you work through your addiction and you the the goal the end step is to help others now. It's like now yeah, it's exactly. it, and, and that's what I think keeps people on that path uh hopefully free from their addictions is that community that happens of helping others. Exactly. And community is the key thing here. Yeah. Right, we rely on others. Yeah, that's one of the really nasty narratives in capitalism is like, mm. you got to fix yourself on your own. 
you know, like yeah. the hurt we're feeling is is collective, and it's it's yeah. happening in collective. You know, capitalism is a this you know it's this collective unconscious thing that's just coursing through our veins and coursing through our ecosystem, and yet we're supposed to individually get by, you know, without community, and it's just it's very toxic. You just mentioned this in the, your previous answer, mm-hmm. so this idea of of helping others. This is, um, you know, I, f- I think you say this explicitly and, in your book, but this idea of the new saint is, is in some ways synonymous with the bodhisattva mm-hmm. path, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of bringing that to other exactly. people. Exactly. Right. I mean, the bodhisattva, you know, in terms of, you know, Buddhist tradition is, is the spiritual saint, it's the mm-hmm. spiritual warrior, right? And, and it's, it's a, a position um, that we take or, you know, a vow that we make that says that like, no, the most important thing that I can do is get free from suffering and help others get free from suffering. Right. Because this isn't where we belong. This is just this experience that we're stuck in at our detriment. Right. So the Bodhisattva awakens a little bit and says, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I'm actually going to try to get free and see if I can get others out of this. As well, so 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 this is a collective motivation. It's not just me, but it's all of us, hmm. right? Like we all deserve to be free. And what am I going to do to support this project of collective yeah. freedom? Hmm. And something that I always was curious about is the because like when when I hear this the the idea of the bodhisattva path mm-hmm. of of liberating all beings it sounds very evangelical to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and we all know mm-hmm. the problems with evangelical christianity uh-huh. this idea of like converting people does that resonate or does that make sense at all oh absolutely yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean i come out of that okay yeah. <laughs> you know i was raised you know um in a community like that but you know the thing is freedom is something that we have to consent to right you know and if someone doesn't consent to it then there's nothing else that can be done, right? And what we talk about, what we see in like this kind of Christian right-wing nationalism is this idea of freedom being imposed on all of us, which is just a reiteration of capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, mm-hmm. right? That's not freedom. That's getting more indoctrinated into the system to benefit a handful of folks. So right. when we talk about the Bodhisattva vow, and particularly how I reinterpreted the Bodhisattva vow and tradition in the new saints is that like, no, let's understand freedom as a complete um, transcendence of suffering, you know, um, a complete, you know, kind of revolution and who we think we are and what we think we are. Right. But that can't happen until you consent (laughs) to the process. Right. So if I am forcing you to get free, you know, even though like I may think that my work around liberation is the real liberation work, like if you don't consent to it, then if I force you into something, then it just turns into violence. Right. And so, so much of this kind of work that I'm, you know, offering folks is that like if people don't want to get free, you have to mourn that, not continue to impose. <laughs> like like liberation work on people, you say it's not your time. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and the same case with me. Like, I wasn't born Buddhist, right? But I, I, from a very young age, I was really interested in justice and freedom work. But I knew, you know, about looking back, I can understand rather that, like, I had to really actually choose this for myself. Yeah. Right. Like, because there were, you know, many times that people came to me before I, you know, kind of got into Buddhism where people were like, oh, you need to do this, this, and that, which looking back would have been great ideas, <laughs> you know, but I just wasn't ready. Like I was ready when I was ready. And this is when the Bodhisattva really activates. It's like when someone's ready, then you offer support. Mm-hmm. Right. But also, like, the bodhisattva, I was surrounded by bodhisattvas, you know, and not even knowing it. There were people who were embodying uh, compassion, love, liberation my whole life by, I didn't necessarily get that that, they, that's, that that was what they were doing, but it influenced me nonetheless. You know, so I can look back and say, oh, such and such really mm-hmm. embodied authentic love. And it really influenced me. And now I can claim that and name that yeah. you know, as something as an inspiration, which I do in the book. Yep. You know, I ask people to go back and think about times where they felt real love from someone. Yeah. Right. That's, that's what the Bodhisattva does. The Bodhisattva just loves. And when mm-hmm. you're ready to get hooked to that love, then you start the work of liberation from mm-hmm. self-hate. Yeah, that's I guess too the <clears throat> the idea of embodiment. Like the bodhisattva doesn't need to tell you that exactly about love. They just are exactly. love, exactly, and it's transmitted to you. And when you're in their presence, that's it. And that's that's why I am not interested in people being Buddhist. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm not interested in standing on the street corner proselytizing. I'm not interested in 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 forcing what I believe onto people. Like that's just not. It's, that's not my agenda. I want people to be free, happy, and resourced and safe. Yeah. Period. However you get there is your concern, your business, mm-hmm. right? If you ask me for help, then I help, right? But I'm just concerned with people having what they need, yeah. right? And however you get there, because like I, you know, I'm very fortunate to have friends and colleagues and family really from different traditions, all kinds of traditions and spiritual paths, right? And they, they're they understanding freedom in their own way, right? And they're understanding freedom in a way that's not about creating harm for other people, right? It's not about forcing other people into their beliefs. It's really about saying, this is what I'm doing hmm. to get free, right? And I'm not so interested in, again, like converting people to Buddhism, you know, I don't want to see a Buddhist world. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that's strange to see. I don't want to see a Christian world. <laughs> like, I want to see a world where people are choosing paths of liberation that reduce collective harm and violence that helps us to live together harmoniously without the need to colonize or dominate each other because we feel insecure about what we've chosen to practice as our path. Right, dominance comes out of like deep insecurity. Like you know, like that somehow this isn't going deep enough, or somehow that this that this isn't authentic enough, or you know, it comes from this experience of how ego co-ops spiritual liberation work. 
Hmm. Right. So the ego just turns all this work back into itself and says, you know what? Everyone has to be like me in order for, for this to make sense. You know, Um, I mean, it's dangerous as we know, (laughs) you know, we're very familiar with the danger, you know, and I think for younger generations, I, I think it, it's natural for a lot of them to have this kind of suspicion mm-hmm. of religion, yep. you know, particularly religion, the structured, dogmatic expression of religion that seems really rigid. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, it's totally. important mm-hmm. yeah. to point out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's and it's science non-duality. Like we, we present spirituality, but much more on the mystical path which is the, the right. exper- experiential it's the mm-hmm. you know it's it's transcendence through experience not through dogma yeah yeah i mean that's so that's important experience and that's buddhism like experiential and that's what mm-hmm. the buddha taught you know, like yeah. go and like test this out if it doesn't yeah. work then don't do it yeah <laughs> you Come, know? Uh, was it ahi no i forget the pali word now ahi pasako i think come see for yourself mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Come you see know? for yourself. It's like don't don't take my word for it. Try exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so many people are afraid because maybe they'll discover that like what they've devoted themselves to isn't exactly isn't what it it is, mm-hmm. you know? And that's heartbreaking. I know I've been there. Yeah. Right? But you have to be willing to go through that, you know? Yeah, and, and for me in my practice in Buddhism as well, it's like mm-hmm. the the um, it's it's comforting though when 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 you try these things. Like mm-hmm. I remember when I was first started getting into meditation, mm-hmm. I was terrified at what I would yeah. find when I let my mind stop. Yeah. I was like, what if it's like anger and hatred and jealousy, mm-hmm. and that's my core being? I was really, you know, I was really resi- resistant to letting go of my ego, letting go of my yeah. mind, and then. When I did that, and 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 finally, like, had glimpses of of the chatter stopping, and all that was there was joy. I was yeah. like, "Wow, it's just what 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 it says is there." Yeah, Equ- equanimity and joy, and all these yeah. uh, exalted states are are actually there. You know, it's yeah. not it's not just a story. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was very similar. You know, but like every time I sat and meditated, like the suffering was there. You know, just super, it felt super amplified. So it took me years to really stabilize in meditation, you know, but you you stay at it. And this is the advice that we have to like reiterate over and over again. It's a practice. It's called practice for a reason. You know, it's like we have to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And for many of us, it takes years to get to, to these states, right, of touching joy, equanimity, you know, or meditative stability, mm-hmm. right? Of being really able to hold awareness consciously, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it takes time, but like this is what we have to do to commit to liberation. Liberation is a very long timeline and we have to start it somewhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and I, I think a lot of the... the um Activist, um, social justice things that mm-hmm. you that you write and talk and teach mm-hmm. about, you know, they, they become framed through the wisdom practices. Like you, you were yeah. talking earlier about allowing the space for the emotion to, to take place, yeah. and that can only happen through gradual 
meditation practice, right? Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, it's not something we can just turn on and it works. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But it's something we commit to. Right. Um, Like it's, it's 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 important to again to reiterate that like the real change you want to see in the world has to actually begin mm-hmm. in your own body and mind, mm-hmm. right? We have to at least get to a place where we're able to hold space for everything, so we can transition from reactivity to responsiveness, mm-hmm. right? You know, so I can choose how to respond, not just react. Right. Just I can I can see what's happening. I can hold space for a lot and I can figure I can I can make a choice to say this is what I'm gonna do. Kind of a basic question about the title of the book, mm-hmm. uh, The New Saints. And, you know, I think in the first chapter or second chapter, you're talking mm-hmm. about these um, sort of iconic saints that we know, you know, like Martin yeah. Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. or, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, Greta Thunberg, yeah. whoever, these like mm-hmm. very charismatic people who are able to yeah. carry a message. And do you think that that's part of the, like if, if there was a, a Martin Luther King Jr. in Palestine or mm-hmm. um, in the Congo or wherever wherever there's mm-hmm. injustice happening. Mm-hmm. Would that paradigm of new saints, like, um, basically, is, is, do you think that would make a difference? Well, you know, I think that, like, a new saint is really someone who shows up with this altruistic attitude to free beings, to benefit beings. And the real change makers, right, who created the most change for us in our different cultures were people who look just like us, who talk just like us. So the Bodhisattva and the New Saint, they take on the expression of the culture. They take on all these identity markers, right? They have to be of the people, (laughs) right? And so, like, and there are a lot of, like, I mean, there's so many change makers, right? But, you know, there there are certain causes and conditions that come together for people like Dr. King or Malcolm X or whomever Mm -hmm. to really have this kind of prominence Mm -hmm. and attention, you know? But I think that that core characteristic is a deep love for people and a deep commitment to freedom that inspires. Like, we can feel that. I can feel, in my case, I can feel someone's authentic commitment to getting people free. Mm-hmm. Like there's a love or an energy or a frequency that I just feel I resonate with, you know, and that galvanizes me, that pulls me close to them, right? But I think there are a lot of people like that. They're just not like social media stars. Right. <laughs> you know? They're not, you know, they're not people that we're like writing stories about and broadcasting all over the place, but they're doing work. There are a lot of invisible new saints, keeping people alive that will never be celebrated or written about in history. And that's not the motivation either is to be known. 
right? To be celebrated. No, it's not my motivation. Like, I just want to help. And it just so happens that I get attention, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But not to get lost in the intention, but to always come back to the work of saying, yeah, I'm here to get people free, not to be a personality, right? right? Not to be, you know, uh, a best-selling author or whatever it is, is to help people suffer less, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. And that, that, that intention resonates for you. Like, in a, like, I guess writing a book is hard. It's hard work, you know. Yeah. And there's probably days where you're like, ah, you know what, forget it. My other book was yeah, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that intention yeah. of help, of, because of, I, I think off, off, also too often it's um, maybe an author feels like there's, um, there's a, a, some sort of gap in, in the knowledge that you need to fill. It's like yeah. you have to write this book. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's like, also for me, it was also saying, you know, I have something, I have something very particular to say as well, which is the same as feeling, you know, filling a, a, a gap. But like, I was like, no, there's something that I can say uniquely that I know will help at least a few people. Yeah. And that's enough for me yep. to do a book. Yeah. Yeah, like I said book, earlier, mm-hmm. it it, it re- I think it'll it ap- appeals to so many different types of people. It like feels yeah. so inclusive yeah. in terms of just the the language and the references you make. Yeah. I love I love all the references to Pose. I love that show. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But again, like it's just like I wanted also to write a book um, for people coming from the same communities that I do because mm-hmm. I I didn't have a teacher that looked like me. When I was coming up, I didn't have black teachers or black llamas. I, you know, still don't really have black llamas, but like, like I didn't see myself reflected. But um, I did have teachers who were really committed Mm. to reducing harm and suffering and getting free, and that was enough. They didn't have to look like me. They didn't have to come from the same class. They didn't have to be queer, you know, or whatever. But I, I. I just wanted them to be compassionate, and that's what I got. Yeah. Well, now I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm not alone. <laughs> There's, <laughs> you know, countless people who are, are glad that you're out there teaching what you teach, write, writing what you write about. Because I know for me, when I'm in my dark places and I'm like mm-hmm. looking on YouTube for a teacher or a Dharma talk, there's something about like, um, like Michael Singer, for example. Like he just, he sounds like me, talks like me, has the same yeah. kind of sense of humor. And when I'm mm-hmm. feeling dark, it's like, I want someone that feels like me, you know? And I, I think yeah. you're giving that to people and yeah. there was a big gap in that, you know? Yeah. 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 It's like people get it. Like if someone looks like you, you feel like, okay, they get it. Mm-hmm. You know? So when people come to me, you know, who I mirror and they're like, well, this is impossible. That's impossible. We can't do that. And I'm like, yeah. well, I, I come from the same place you do. <laughs> you know, I come from the same communities and same identity locations. It's yeah. hard, but I did it. Yeah. You know, and that kind of like just 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 looking like the people that need help is mm-hmm. such a huge benefit. Yep. You know, I can just walk into a room and just sit on the teacher's seat, and that's enough. 
for some people just to see me do that. And that encourages them and inspires them to continue going to see me. Right. But I hope this book opens up the door for a lot of folks, you know, who don't see themselves reflected to feel inspired to say, you know what, if if Rod did it, I can do it. Yeah. 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 Cause you know, people will say like, Oh, the Dharma is universal. Like there's no identity in the Dharma, but like, I remember I grew up in Philadelphia. Like I remember Mm -hmm. walking past, um, you know, like black Baptist churches Yeah, and, and yeah, I would would hear the music happening and I would see them happening outside, but I didn't feel like, okay, well, this is a place where, where I'm going to go as like a, you know, a white, white kid. It's just like, so sometimes it's, you just don't feel, and I'm I'm sure many people of color feel about that, especially about so-called mindfulness, like American Buddhist circles, you know, that Mm -hmm. it's, it's very exclusive and it just doesn't feel like, uh, I don't think that's for me, you know, just because of the way that people look. So exactly, exactly. It can be a complete turn off. Oh yeah. 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 And it's, it's just, it can be very subtle and energetic too. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, just one thing that comes up about this too is that like this kind of like Western white convert Buddhist community, mm-hmm. you know, um, aren't necessarily about freedom and justice. No. You know, and that's and that's the issue yep. that we have to talk more about, you know. And I tell and as as I say in the book, it's like I'm actually teaching from a place of liberation and justice. I'm not teaching to get people to be more comfortable or happier. And I think that's the project of, I would say, you know, mainstream mindfulness, contemplative arts in general, contemplative contemplative practices like, oh, let's just get people kind of regulated, you know, and assimilated, you know, comfortable, you know, so they can produce more and be more, you know, whatever, efficient. Yeah. Right, but not to teach people to pay attention to their bodies and minds so they can start divesting from systems and institutions that create harm and start reinvesting in the truer expression of who we are. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the project of Buddhism. Yeah. You know, but it still gets kind of confiscated by this yeah. kind of relative comfort and happiness. Yep. You know, which is limiting. I tell people, listen, like, yeah, I'm talking about liberation, but you're going to get to happiness and comfort and all this stuff. And, you know, you're going to get there automatically if you just shoot for the end goal, which is complete mm-hmm. liberation. Everything is going to happen. But if, if you're just wanting to be comfortable, that's so limiting. You're going to plateau. Yeah. You know, but you're going to still plateau within experiences of suffering. Mm-hmm. Right, you can get comfortable and happy, and bypass and push away suffering real easily, and that's how we get into overconsumption and capitalism, you know, and these other systems, you know. So we're trying to transcend all of that, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, <clears throat> talking or staying with this idea of the, um, yeah, the the American Buddhist. Mm-hmm. practices it's like it's very extractive too and i've mm-hmm. talked to monks about this like they um a, a lot of kind of white buddhist centers like to kind of take out parts like you know secular buddhism that whole right. 
that whole school, it's like, you know, we're just going to take out the parts that we like that make us feel good. And the rest of it's, you know, karma and rebirth. That's kind of silly, superstitious stuff by less primitive people. But also, as you're saying, social justice. I mean, the Buddha, he, he was a revolutionary in many ways, the way yeah. he invited women into his sangha and yeah. it, it dispelled notions of, of, of caste, the caste system. Yeah. You know. yeah. The Buddha was a cult leader. I mean, so many of these great religious spiritual leaders have arisen in cultures that have been really rigid, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and the Buddha arose and started doing this work, right, to erase caste division, Mm -hmm. you know, for instance, right? And he was looked at as being subversive, a threat in the same way Jesus was, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, but we lose that spirit, you know, because when something gets really big and and institutionalized, right, it loses the folk. It really loses its original focus, yeah. you know, um, because the original focus was so intense mm-hmm. that it had to be watered down in order to get more people into it. Right. You know, you talk about, you know, you, you say, well, you know, we're trying to get free from suffering and we have to go through all of this and we have to move into this really intense balancing, you know, a form and the formless or emptiness and form like that's that's real intense work, yeah. you know, and it takes a lot of labor, you know, to do that. But again, for me, that's why. Buddhism was so important for me because it was like, here's, yeah, there's suffering and here's the work to get free. And I was like, I'm sold, you know, and no matter, I'm not afraid of working. You know, I come from people who work, right? I descend from people, you know, who, who had to, to survive enslavement and genocide, Right, so I, I I have that in my DNA, right? So I'm, of course, I'm attuned to this project of liberation, you know. So again, I I don't believe everyone again should be Buddhists. Again, right. like that's not my project, because not everyone is ready for this particular kind of liberation work, and that's okay. Yeah, and and I say also that I'm not trying to be everyone's teacher. You know, you lose integrity when you're always trying to, like, recruit and be accessible for everyone, right? And when I say accessible, it's not, yeah, I'm not saying that, like, I shouldn't be really conscious of trauma and, and, you know, and identity, because I am. But when I say being too concerned with accessibility, what I'm really talking about is that, like, you stop telling the truth Mm -hmm. about what the work is because you don't want to scare people off. Yeah. <laughs> right, so I have to talk about the heartbreak because that's where you're heading. <laughs> if you mm-hmm. if you sit down on that cushion, this is what you're heading into, and I don't want to lie to you because if I lie to you and say it's going to be all like roses and puppies and rainbows, <laughs> and then you're just like crawling through the most intense trauma, then you're going to think I'm lying to you. You're going to and you're going to lose faith in this so just again just like the buddha did just tell the truth up front yeah this is real fucked up (laughs) you know and guess what here's the path to to move through this yeah and it's not easy you know but we have a sangha and teachers that they can help yeah 
Yeah, you're not alone, which is yeah. the silver lining in that dark cloud of suffering. Yeah. Hey. Um, one last thing I wanted to touch into, which I was really blown away with this chapter, is on prayer. Because I was mm. not expecting a, a chapter on prayer in this book. Yeah. And it was probably really, not a chapter yeah. on loving God either. <laughs> yeah. No, well, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you you said earlier you obviously you wrote this before uh, you wrote this kind of yeah. as we were coming out of COVID pandemic mm-hmm. before maybe before Ukraine yeah. war like these global oh, yeah. wars were started up. Yeah. But when the chapter when I came to that chapter, I was just like, man, this is what we need right now is just prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is what mm-hmm. got our ancestors through. Hard, mm-hmm. maybe harder times than what we're going through. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, prayer is important for me, you know. And as I talk about in that chapter, when I came into my tradition of Buddhism, which is Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, or often I just say Tantric Buddhism, like it was nothing but prayer, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, oh, this is so boring. <laughs> you know, why I'm like everything, you couldn't even eat without doing like a 10-minute prayer, right? I was just like, I'm over it, I'm over it, I'm over it. Um, but as I grew into my practice, as I reconnected to my ancestry and how I grew up, I really came back to prayer in a way that just felt really like vital mm-hmm. and nourishing and really sweet, you know? just It just feels like an extension of meditation practice for me, just an opening a connecting, a feeling held of articulating the change that I need to see and asking for help, right? And that just, it just really, once I started really taking prayer seriously, it really transformed everything for me, Mm. you know? But we have to like, we have to figure out what we need and that's what prayer has helped me to do. And we don't know what we need. This is why we overconsume. This is why we're confused, you know, this is why often we find ourselves in the conflicts that we're in because we we haven't been taught to name what we need, not what we want. Like, we all know what we want, right? But when I say need, I'm like, the things that I need to get free, the things that help me to get ready for deeper compassion, love, and kindness, and care, and everything. Yeah. What, I, what I need to to really belong and to be a part of communities. What do I need to survive? Mm-hmm. Right? Like those needs and prayers help me to figure that out. And we'll maybe we close with a prayer of, <laughs> of would you mind closing us with a prayer? Would that feel okay? Or Absolutely. Well, yeah. I can read a prayer from the book. Yes, that would be great. And this is on page 227 of the book. And this is a prayer for light. I am praying for light today. When I say that I am praying for the light, what I mean is that I am deciding to become the light. I also accept that there is darkness in the world. I understand that the darkness I see in the world is also the darkness I see in myself. There is no darkness in the world that does not also abide in some form in me. When I acknowledge the dark, I am also acknowledging that I cannot know the blessing of light without first naming the darkness. Therefore, while I pray for light and love, therefore, while I pray for and love the light, 
I will also love the darkness because whatever I choose to authentically love, I allow it to be free. I choose to let my darkness be free so it can stand next to the light. When they are standing together, they will tell the true story of my life. And in that truth-telling, I will accept both the light and the dark and know that the dark is only a place where the light has not learned to live. As I decide to become light, I am also praying that I develop the courage to learn to live in the dark places. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content, available exclusively to sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.